boarding causes pain. Crowding and boarding are not synonymous. Exactly. So you are walking into a losing fight just to be in with. Putting cold numbers and body counts to this is, is impressive. This is the Down East EM Podcast. All right. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Down East EM Podcast. We have a special conversation, interview-style discussion here today with a guest of ours, Pat Sanders. Pat, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. And why don't you tell the listeners just a little bit about yourself? All right. So as said, my name is Pat Sanders. Um, I'm an emergency medicine physician and uh, the self-proclaimed director of clinical medicine at Maine Medical Center. Uh, I've been there for about 16 years, and I'm on the clinical track, which means I don't do a whole lot of academics, don't do a whole lot of uh, public speaking or research. I do all of my uh, teaching with the residents at the bedside. And so this is my first ever adventure into podcasting, so I apologize if it's uh, not as smooth as it should be. Oh, it's going to be perfect, and thank you for joining us for your first dipping of the toes, but I'm sure we're going to have you back. Uh, I guess today we're going to be talking about boarding, is that right? That is true. So um, as with most hospitals throughout the U.S., boarding has become a really, really big issue. Um, And it made Medical Center in the last couple of years, it's become a truly major issue, and a couple of years, excuse me, about uh, two months ago, uh, I had some of the academic and uh, administrative folk approach me as um, I'm a different voice, being more of a clinical or clinician, and they asked me to give grand rounds and a discussion with the hospitalist group and other admission, uh, admitting teams on the issue of boarding in Maine Medical Center. And it's something I accepted because I think it's really, really a big problem at Maine Med, and I thought at least if we can get the conversation out, have a discussion on the problems with boarding and possibly even discuss a few uh, options for improvement, maybe we would actually see something improve in our ED. Excellent. That's an awesome introduction to the topic. I think uh, it's probably really underrepresented in, in foam and podcasting, right? So that's part of why we wanted to have you on because we talk a lot about sort of the medicine side of things, maybe some of the leadership things, but an administrative issue as broad spread and touching of everyone really as boarding is worth discussing. So thanks for taking the time. I also um, think this is truly important, and I don't think we're the only ones who find this to be important. The example I'm going to give is the Institute of Medicine actually recently declared that boarding is the leading safety concern for all first world emergency departments, mm-hmm. which to me is a pretty profound statement. I mean, we have Ebola, we now have coronavirus, we have violence against staff, we have nameless other medical processes that could potentially be a safety issue. Uh, but they have declared that a boarding crisis and boarding patients in the ED is our biggest safety issue, and I will agree with them. Wow, yeah. So some numbers for, again, my hospital is a little different than many of the other hospitals of people who will be listening to this. But just some numbers to demonstrate how bad it's gotten in the last couple of years. Um, I've been at Maine Medical Center for f- uh, 16 years. In the last two years, we've been on more ambulance diversion than I was in my first 14 years combined. The boarding hours in January of 2018 was about 4,000 total boarding hours, which is time spent um, in the emergency department after you've been admitted. And we define boarding as being admitted, staying in the emergency department for more than two hours after admission orders have been placed. So we had 4,000 of those in January of 2018. January 2019, we jumped to 8,800 hours, which is a huge problem. And then this year, we made a few corrections, but we haven't improved all that much. In this January, so January of 2020, we had a little over 6,000 hours of boarding in our emergency department. Okay, so a massive increase in your years there. And even in the last year, that's exponential almost. That's a doubling within the year, basically. Yeah, within the last two years, we have doubled the amount of boarding we've gone through. Okay. Is this an issue sort of specific to our area, our region, our hospital, or you think that this is a more global phenomenon? I think this is truly a global phenomenon. Um, The benefit of Maine, um, the benefit of living in Maine is we're a little behind with a lot Mm. of the rest of the United States. We're a little behind New York City and Boston and Los Angeles just purely because we have a much smaller volume of people. Sure. But I believe this is a a problem throughout every emergency department throughout the United States. I know I've worked at Southern Maine where you work primarily And years ago, they did not have a boarding issue. But I know when I last worked there about five years ago, they were starting to have true issues with keeping people in in their emergency department. I don't know how it still is now. Yeah, we uh, have a bit of that. And certainly we don't have the the volume that 
you're experiencing, uh, and it's going to vary by month and sort of seasonality, right? Summertime being worse than the dead of winter, especially with the flu season we had this year. We had some. So even in a smaller community hospital, we are uh, victims of boarding. And whether it's a big hospital like mine, whether it's a moderate-sized hospital like yours, or even a small critical access hospital like many of the hospitals throughout Maine, boarding is truly a, a problem for any emergency department. We can't do our job. So if there's one thing that this discussion will make you guys understand or the big point I want to get across is we can never accept boarding to be actual a normal variant. I know regularly I'll walk into work and I'll look at the board and there'll be 15 or 17 boarders and people will say, we're in good shape today. We're only down to 15 boarded people. But I don't like that whole idea that we've become, we've come to expect that we'll have boarders in our ED. I want this to constantly be a fight to never accept this as normal. I want it always to be an abnormal process to keep boarded people in the emergency department. And in my discussion in a little while, as we go on, you'll understand how actually dangerous this truly is. Okay. There's a couple points I'd like to make throughout this talk to kind of change a little bit of the dialogue about how we think about this. We call this ED boarding, and throughout this whole talk, I'm either going to call it ED boarding or ED crowding because that's the terminology we use. But I don't think that's truly an appropriate name for this because this truly is not an emergency department process. This is not something that starts in the emergency department. This is something that we feel the effects of because of all the other different effects throughout the medical field coming back towards the emergency department. I'm not sure if I'm explaining that real well, but this is not an ED issue. This is a hospital-based issue. or This is a true medical field issue. And here I want to talk about a couple examples about what I mean. Sure. The first one is primary care physicians. So our poor um, primary care physicians right now are expected to see an exorbitant number of patients every day in their office. Their schedules are filled to the grill. They are staff are filled to the point where they cannot see acute care patients who don't need emergent care. And unfortunately, those patients are often sent to the emergency department. So think about a lot of the ED boarding or crowding process is actually a block to the access of appropriate levels of medical care. So these patients don't need time-sensitive emergent care. They need primary care physician acute care. But because the primary care physicians do not have the ability to see them, they have a lack of access to their primary care physicians and end up in the emergency department filling our beds and keeping patients who need emergent time-sensitive care from actually using their beds. So this is an access issue. And that's sort of, you, I'm sure we're going to talk more about that downstream. That's, that's the thing that comes to mind, right? You imagine a flowing river and one village is going to put a dam in place so that they can, you know, get hydroelectric power, whatever. That is great for them, but upstream, people are going to be flooded. They're going to have problems. And that's the way that I've always imagined boarding. But to think about even the realities outside of that, outside of that exact stream to the outpatient community is not really an avenue or an area that I've uh, considered when thinking about boarding. Yeah, unfortunately, a lot of the, the effects of boarding are because of effects from the outpatient world. Mm. Another example that we have issue with is psychiatric services. And while Maine is not as bad off as other parts of the United States, there's a true paucity of outpatient medical, uh, psychiatric care throughout the United States. Mm -hmm. And this is a problem in two different aspects. One, if you have good outpatient care, patients are monitored, they're treated, and they remain stable. A lot of times, due to a lack of outpatient management, patients enter crisis. And when they enter crisis, they end up in our emergency department. And a patient with a psychiatric crisis are supposed to be in the emergency department. That is our job to do. I'm not worried about them being there. That's what we're there for. But if these patients had appropriate outpatient psychiatric care before they hit crisis, they would never have to get into the emergency department. Sure. The other process problem with lack of outpatient services is once the patients hit crisis, we stabilize them, send them to an inpatient psychiatric bed. Once they are in the inpatient psychiatric bed and they become stabilized, they no longer need inpatient psychiatric care. They can't be discharged from the psychiatric hospital because there's no outpatient services for them to be discharged to. So the lack of outpatient services keep the inpatient units full. The inpatient units being full keep a lot of the patients in crisis still in the emergency department, which leads to an ED crisis issue based on psychiatric services. Mm. Another issue with lack of flow from the emergency department or from the hospital itself is the gatekeepers that um, long-term care facilities or rehab facilities have uh, created. Mm. So they are truly gatekeepers and people getting out of the hospital. 
They don't like taking people in the evening. They don't take people on the weekends. So the lack of persist or consistent flow from either the ED or an inpatient unit to long-term care facilities keeps our acute medical beds filled with people who no longer need acute medical care. Sure. So they come to the emergency department. They need to be admitted. They're admitted to the hospital. Their medical issues are stabilized. They're not safe to go home. They need long-term care facilities or rehab, but we can't get them to the rehab because it's Friday at 3 o'clock. So they're held for three or four days in the hospital, holding up an acute medical bed when acute medical care is not needed anymore and keeping the patients that now need acute medical care stuck in the emergency department. Sure. So there's a whole lot of downstream effect be it primary care physicians, be it psychiatric services, be it long-term care facilities that funnel back to the hospital and ED itself that lead to a lot of our boarding issues. And all of this is based on a lack of access to appropriate levels of care. So oftentimes people are in acute medical beds who no longer need them. They need rehab and they don't have access to get into that. Mm. Yeah, so those are sort of similar issues going back over. The psychiatric seems to be cyclic, right? There's not enough outpatient services, so patients end up in crisis crisis and they end up in our ER, they eventually get up to a psychiatric bed uh, where they get stabilized. But when it's time to discharge, there's not enough outpatient services, so they can't be discharged safely. And around and around we go. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of a vicious circle um, that all, unfortunately, ends up funneling back to the emergency department taking the brunt of all of this. Because we're open 24-7, we are used to working in austere environments, and we are constantly dynamic in how we work, so we're able to handle a lot of this um, this overflow of extra uh, patient care. Mm-hmm. As I go through this also, I'm about to start talking about um, a lot of different studies that show how dangerous boarding actually is in the department. But a lot of this also, as I've discussed, is based on lack of appropriate access. So oftentimes mm-hmm. it's considered that maybe we should build or expand. My hospital at my medical center, for instance, is undergoing a $500 million expansion. We're adding about 128 beds, surgical units, all these extra access to facilities in our hospital. But the problem is it's not an it's not a facilities issue. It's a flow issue. Mm. So we can build these extra 128 beds, but if we don't fix the flow we have, this $500 million expansion is not going to fix anything. We'll fill them up and we'll be stuck with the exact same process we are now, but with just more people in the hospital. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to discuss this throughout the, the entire time. This is an, an inappropriate access to inappropriate levels of care. And it is a issue with flow through the hospital, not a quantity of facilities or the number of beds issue. This is almost never based on how many beds we have. It's based on how we use our beds. Okay. That's a great, simple way of describing that. It's not the beds themselves or their quantity. It's not our infrastructure, but our systems-based practices. Infrastructure is a much better word than what I use. Yes. It's not an infrastructure issue. It's a flow issue. Yeah. All right. So let's get into um, uh, a couple of studies. So I'm not going to get into the nitty-gritty of the studies here. Um, the nitty-gritty is tend to be kind of monotonous and boring. I will put all of these into the show notes, so if you want to access to all of these papers, you'll have the citations below. I just want to talk about what the papers do, what they discuss, and then the outcomes of what each paper does. Let's do it. All right. So we'll start with hip fractures. So hip fractures is something we tend to see fairly often. I've seen one or two, yeah. Yeah. So this was a retrospective study. Uh, looked at patients admitted from the ED with Confirmed hip fractures. This matters to us because hip fractures are painful. Hip fractures we see a lot. And one of the primary issues that patients have with concern of coming to the ED is delay in care. And is there an association with boarding or crowding in the initiation and assessment of pain with hip fractures? So their assessment of boarding was based on total ED census, mean length of stay for admitted patients, which are both pretty good measures of boarding. So the more crowded we are in the ED, we tend to be boarding. And if you have patients who are there a long time, that's because they tend to be boarded patients. They looked at the assessment of pain and then the time to treatment of pain. And they noted that if the ED census grew over 120%, there's a direct correlation with a decreased assessment of pain down to about 81%. And actually, a de- an increase in time of about two hours to actually getting pain meds onto people. Mm. So somebody comes in with a hip fracture, which is a truly painful process. And on a tr- on a crowded day, when boarding uh, beyond it goes beyond an ED capacity of about 120 percent or ED census of 120 percent, there is upwards of a two hour delay to treat patients appropriately. Yeah, with so, treat their pain. Yeah, and wow. that that to me is a big deal. 
One day I'll probably break my hip. I don't want to sit there for two hours waiting for pain control. So the outcome of this study showed that older patients with hip fractures are at increased risk for underassessment and undertreatment of pain as ED census and ED length of stay increases. So boarding causes pain. The next one is we're going to discuss asthma. This is another retrospective study. It looked at the effect of ED crowding on length of stay in patients discharged with asthma-related complaints. Okay. So these are not patients who are admitted. These are patients who come in. And as you know, with a vast majority of patients we see with asthma-related complaints, these are usually patients who get discharged. It's pretty rare that we have to admit an asthmatic. Those are the people who are obviously the most severe. Right. About 1% of all ED volume is asthma-related. So not huge numbers. In our institution, that's going to be about three patients a day. So again, not huge numbers, but every little bit counts. They looked at ED census, the waiting room population, number of admitted patients, and then total patient hours in the ED as the determinants of crowding. And all of those are pretty good numbers to look at um, for a determination of of crowding in the ED, of how how busy busy you are. are. Sure. They split these up into four quartiles, the lowest, obviously, the highest. The best days are on the low quartile. The busiest days are the higher quartile. Okay. All four measures had a direct correlation with time to initial treatment. Mm-hmm. And we know that the faster we get to asthmatic patients, the faster they get their beta agonists, the faster they get their steroids, the faster they have response. So if there is a delay to initial treatment, there is going to be a prolonged length of stay in the department, which clearly makes sense. Right. From lowest to highest quartile, there was an increase of 75 minutes on length of stay for discharge patients. So in RED, that's almost four hours of patient time in RED that could be improved with lack of boarding. Wow. So this study obviously shows that crowding slows initiation of treatment. Slowing initiation of treatment delays discharge in patients uh, presenting to the ED and then eventually discharge with asthma-related complaints. And that's an interesting point in terms of asthma because you can maybe extrapolate that idea a little bit into some other areas i feel like you know asthma yes it probably goes home and time to treatment really matters we can argue to we're blue in the face about time to antibiotics for sepsis but it probably has an effect in terms of mortality oh just and, you wait that's coming next <laughs> oh, okay <laughs> and then copd copd is the one where you know are they going to stay are they going to go how quickly can we get to them and get them treated if we can't get them better quickly then we have another admission. Right. Then we have one less bed in our department, and the problem snowballs. Absolutely. So that's the same thing we're going to notice. This is a flow-related event. If you have a block of flow, you cannot get new patients into your room. You cannot get the old patients out. Yeah. So this could directly be correlated with COPD, and, and we're going to look in the next two or three slides about time-related management for other pathologies. Excellent. So very good timing there. Thank Sepsis you. is our very next complaint, our very next study. This is another retrospective study that uh, looked at the time to IV fluids, the time to antibiotics, the use of protocol-based care, and its effect on mortality in correlation with ED crowding. And I think this is an important study because this is the bread and butter of what we do. This is emergency medicine. This is a life-threatening disease process that needs time-sensitive management, and this is what we do. We are good at taking the sick people and making them better, but we have to be able to get to them. Of course, CMS, and we all know CMS quality measures, determine the quality of care of sepsis is based on almost unattainable goals of IV fluids, antibiotics, and protocol-based care done within an hour. So does crowding affect all of this? Of course it does. They, again, assess crowding based on ED census, waiting room population, the number of admitted people in the ED, and then total patients' hours in the emergency department. So, again, we're going to see this a lot. This is the big four criteria they tend to use for most studies because it's a, as good as you can get to correlate with how crowded the actual emergency department is. I like that they also use the number of admitted patients because that is a true aspect of boarding. On a really busy day, we may have a large ED census and a large waiting room population, but those could all be native ED patients. Right. The fact that they use admitted patients and then total patient hours in the ED, I think really shows how much of an issue this is related to boarding. Right. I think that's an important point to underpin as we kind of go into these studies is crowding and boarding are not synonymous. There's some surrogate and there's correlation there, but the studies that are going to look at number of patient hours and number of admitted patients are going to have a little bit more truism in terms of their accuracy of boarding. Absolutely, because we have days where no matter what the hospital is, we're going to have these 240, 250 days, which for RED is debilitating, that 
the, nothing the hospital can do is going to affect that. Those are just bad days. Right. So let's look at IV fluids first. Okay. So as ED census and total patient hours increased, so did time to IV fluids, which is not surprising. Antibiotics, as census went up, as total patient hours go up, and the number of admitted patients increased in the ED, so did time to antibiotic administration. Now, IV fluids are truly important for the initiation of management in sepsis, but I think antibiotics are probably the most important aspect for the treatment of sepsis. The faster we get antibiotics on, based on CMS measures, the better patients do. How about following protocol? Well, ever since Emmanuel Rivers put out his protocol-driven care for sepsis, we have changed the care of sepsis to be very protocolized, and we have improved the care of sepsis management. Our mortality with sepsis has gone down considerably. So does crowding have an effect on the ability to use protocolized care? Of course it does. So in the lowest amount of boarding times, they use protocols about 71% of the time, which is what we're going to get. We're never going to be perfect in protocols because it's not always clear initially when we see them that they're septic or with any other disease processes that are sometimes a little hard to diagnose. But if you move to the times of the highest boarding, the effect of using protocols dropped to about 50%. So there's a huge drop. The more busy you are, the less likely you are to do what is expected to do. So as we get crowded, IV fluid time goes up, antibiotic time goes up, use of protocols go down. Does this affect mortality? Shockingly, no. There was absolutely no effect on mortality on any crowding measures. So what this does for me is it calls into question the CMS measures we are expected to follow. Totally agree with that, by the way. Yes. So if timing has been shown to have a huge effect, but it doesn't affect mortality, then why are we being judged on these huge CMS measures? That's a different podcast for another day. Different podcast. Time to antibiotics, (laughs) pre-hospital antibiotics. It's been discussed. It's been debunked. But either way, you have sick patients that you're not getting to. Exactly. And that's the key. So we need to begin treatment and we should do it based on protocols because we know protocols work. So the outcome of this showed that crowding negatively affected administration of IV fluids antibiotics and the following of protocol-based care in the treatment of sepsis, but it did not affect mortality. Regardless, crowding affects timely care. Absolutely. All right. So delirium. This is a very eye-opening study for me. So I knew delirium was bad. One of my partners calls delirium acute brain failure, and I think that is exactly how we should consider this. Mm -hmm. Acute heart failure is a big deal. Well, delirium is an acute brain failure, and this is truly a dangerous process. We admit people who are delirious because their mortality is high. What this study did was looked at the development of delirium while they're hospitalized. So they're not admitted for delirium. They become delirious during their hospitalization and its correlation on crowding in the ED. Hmm. They quoted that development of delirium during hospitalization increases mortality from 22 to 76%. Wow. In the next 30 days. To me, that was shocking. First of all, 22, that's a huge number to start with. (laughs) 22 is scary. It's bad already. If, If I'm one in five people who develop delirium have increased mortality in 30 days, that's a huge number. But if you get up to 76, that number is is amazing. So if there is a correlation between boarding and the development of delirium, which of course there is, that in and of itself is going to increase mortality. And there was a direct correlation with delirium while hospitalized if your care happened in a hallway, which only happens when we're crowded, or the amount of time spent in the ED after your admission, which means you were boarding. So if you have boarders, Native ED patients get care in the hallway. If you're in the ED for a long time after you're admitted, you're boarding. And both of those things increase the risk of development of delirium while you're hospitalized. Which increases your risk of mortality significantly. Significantly. So the ED is loud. The ED is bright. The ED never turns off. There's constant stimulation in the ED. And no matter who you are, you cannot sleep appropriately unless you're some of our regular drunks. You cannot sleep in the ED, and without appropriate sleep, especially if you're elderly, where most of this happens, you become delirious. Um, So clearly, boarding causes delirium, delirium increasing mortality, so boarding kills people. All right, moving on. So these next two are both going to discuss abdominal pain. This is something we tend to see a couple of patients a day in abdominal pain. once or twice. Yeah, in fact, abdominal pain in most EDs is the number one complaint that we see. So this is something that we truly need to focus on. The first one looked at abdominal pain and management of their pain. So this is a retrospective study, and it looked at the correlation of administration of pain medicine for those presenting with abdominal pain 
defined as a delay of over an hour in correlation with boarding. So they did kind of a look back and they tried to account for all the different causes of abdominal pain from simple gastroenteritis to truly life-threatening processes like aortic aneurysm and tried to even them all out. And they were able to do a pretty good job. Okay. Um, again, they assessed crowding by census, population uh, of the waiting room, total number of admitted patients, and total patient hours. So again, the same kind of crowding assessment, uh, and they put those into quartiles. Every bit of correlation with crowding, whether it was a crowded waiting room, whether we had high census, or whether we had a high number of admitted patients, correlated with an increased time to pain med treatment. What this study did show was we're good at treating pain. So if you come in with abdominal pain, you're going to get pain meds. But if it's crowded, you're going to wait a long time, often two plus hours to treatment. And if you come in with abdominal pain, you need, you need pain med treatments. This is, this is uncomfortable. So we know that crowding delays administration of pain meds if you present to the ED. So boarding clearly causes undue suffering of patients with abdominal pain. Fair. This next study is kind of neat. Um, and I think this is a truly important way to look at the dangers of crowding. So abdominal pain is a nebulous complaint. We can have anything from truly benign to acutely life-threatening that often present in very similar ways. So we have learned to rely on CAT scans as the diagnostic test of choice to determine patients with benign processes or patients who have an acute time-sensitive surgical issue that needs to be dealt with. Sure. Now, this is a side note that this hospital was truly inefficient at best, whether they're crowded or uncrowded. Hmm. An example I'm going to give you is the mean time from CAT scan being ordered to radiology interpretation was 375 minutes, which is a little over six hours. Yikes. That, to me, is <laughs> truly inefficient. That's, that's that is, an average. That, that's the mean. So no matter what the day, you were there for six hours if you had a CT order, which is fascinating okay. to me. With it being the mean, not to get off statistical, you might have horrible days. Drags the mean. Right. The median might be a little more representative there, but still not good numbers still to have as your mean. Terrible numbers. So, But what this study did was it looked at a couple of things. One was a secondary finding, which we'll discuss first, which was time from triage to room. And they did pretty well here. In the best quartile, which means their best days, they were triaged to a room in about 22 minutes, which is really good. I think awesome. that's a really good number. Yeah. On their worst days, it took about 92 minutes from triage to a room, which again, I think is a pretty good number. We clearly on busy days do not get all of our belly pains into rooms in 90 minutes. So right. they did a pretty good job from triage to room. But this is where things got a little weird. On their best days, from CT order to CT interpretation by radiology was 318 minutes, so a little over five hours. On their worst days, it was 445 minutes, which is about seven and a half hours. So as you got busy, it took about two to two and a half hours longer to have a CT ordered, performed, and interpreted if you got crowded. Mm. So took a little longer to get patients to room, which we're obviously going Expected, to do. sure. But two hours from a CT ordered to CT interpreted, when we're trying to determine benign versus life-threatening, time-sensitive surgical pathology, that is a huge difference. Mm -hmm. So the outcome of this, clearly, crowding leads to a two-hour delay from CT order to interpretation. So boarding can delay potentially life-threatening or life-saving surgical management. Mm. All right, on to chest pain. Again, something we see a lot. This was a, another retrospective study. And looked at the correlation of crowding and adverse events on patients who were admitted from the ED with chest pain. This is both ACS and non-ACS related chest pain. So they're in the ED and they're admitted from the ED and all the adverse events are done after admission. Hmm. So the adverse events they defined are an acute MI, acute heart failure, a hypotensive event, dysrhythmias and cardiac arrest. And I think all of those are very reasonable adverse events that we care about. I don't want any of those. They looked at basically the similar crowding measures we've discussed in all the others. And this is important because chest pain, as we know, is also a very difficult complaint. There's a huge array of potentially life-threatening diagnoses, or there could be nothing. And it's hard to tell the difference. We know that history, exam, and our tests are far from perfect. So we often admit people for continued workup for chest pain. What this found is as waiting room census and total patient hours increased, so did the number of adverse events. So basically, the longer it took for us to get to patients, the worse they did. And again, sometimes that's because of, it's, of a truly busy ED day. 
but often it's because we cannot get emergent patients into ED beds because of a lack of access of getting inpatients up to an inpatient unit. To go over that a little bit more, they're finding increased number of adverse events from patients from the time of admission while in the emergency department. So patients that are boarding that are chest pain patients with either a high risk story or risk factors are having more bad outcomes as boarders in the ER. Is so that what we're seeing? There, some of these patients did have them as boarders, but they looked at this all the way through till time of discharge. Okay. So some of them were on the floor. Okay. So it is a little odd that boarding is going to affect the patient two or three days down, but it clearly showed that both ACS and non-ACS related complaints had increased adverse events the longer it took for us to see them while they're in the ED. All right. So in terms of our ability to get to see and triage patients to admission versus discharge, and then by the time they're admitted, plus having extra time in the ER, we're getting an increased number of these very serious adverse events. Exactly. Okay. The only one that does not have any effect is a STEMI. So they noted that if you came in and you had a STEMI, it didn't matter how crowded the ED was, your time did not change. And that makes sense. There are a few things we drop everything for, be that a stroke, be it STEMI, be it level one trauma. All of these things, they get our full undivided attention immediately. Sure. So STEMIs had no effect based on ED crowding. Okay. That's still right. fair. The next one we look at is two different diagnoses. And both of these are built on quality measures based on timing. One of them is time to PCI, which I just discussed, STEMI. We like to get them in to PCI within two hours. And the other one is pneumonia and time to antibiotics in about four hours. Hmm. As I just discussed with PCI, there is no correlation with ED crowding, end of story, and the treatment of STEMI. It could be the worst day. It could be the best day. The times are almost always identical. STEMI is a pretty easy diagnosis to make. We get EKGs at triage, often within two or three minutes. The minute we have an EKG, that's our diagnosis. We move. We drop everything. We move forward with a STEMI. So no matter how crowded it is, their time to PCI is almost never affected. And that makes total sense, right? It's, it's often our time to the doc. It's time to our medical decision-making or to our treatments. But we're circumventing the time to a doc. We're throwing pieces of paper in front of us that's making a diagnosis immediately. Absolutely. Now, pneumonia is a little bit different. So pneumonia is a trickier diagnosis. With STEMI, you tend to present with chest pain. We get an EKG, we have a diagnosis. Or you present with something that leads to us getting ED, uh, an EKG, we get a diagnosis. Pneumonia is very different. Mm -hmm. You can present with cough and fever. Good, that's a little bit easier. Or dyspnea. There's a lot of processes that cause you to be out of breath. How about confusion and weakness? We know these older people sometimes don't even cough. They're just weak. How about delirium or unexplained hypoxia? All of these diagnose, these presenting complaints can lead to the diagnosis of pneumonia. Sure. Not as clean. Not as clean. And to diagnose pneumonia, we need a chest x-ray. So as crowding worsens, so does time to chest x-ray. And if we increase time to chest x-ray, we increase the time to diagnosis of pneumonia. We increase the time to diagnosis of pneumonia. We slow our time to antibiotics. So as EDs get more crowded, it is much slower to diagnose the pneumonia, which means it's much slower to get antibiotics in. So what this study showed is crowding absolutely delays quality of care in patients admitted with pneumonia. With pneumonia. Uh, crowding truly worsens quality of care. It takes a much longer time to get to antibiotics. Sure. And that's not so. sepsis. That's just generalized pneumonia. Okay. All right. So how about patient satisfaction? As we've discussed, we know we're not satisfied at all with taking care of patients in the hall. We do not want these admitted patients in our emergency department. When you're signing out at 6 a.m., 55 and 60 people, we are clearly not satisfied with how this works. What about the patients? These studies are all based off of Prescani scores, and I don't want to get started on the utility and quality mm -hmm. of Prescani scores, but it's what we have, so that's what yeah, we're going to use. It's our measure. Sure. That's our measure. We'll discuss maybe a different podcast on the utility of Prescani scores. So let's first look at discharge patients. There is a direct correlation between ED census and decreased patient satisfaction. As volume goes up, it takes a lot longer time to be seen, increased use of hall beds, and decreased satisfaction rates with patients. So sometimes this is because the ED is busy, but it's often because the ED is crowded and we can't get them into beds. Right. So discharge patients are clearly less satisfied when they leave the ED when it's busy. Makes sense. Now, with admitted patients, guess what? They're also not satisfied. Oh, weird. Yeah, it's weird. One funny part that's going to come out of this one, which we'll discuss in a second. So they found that there were two measures that correlated the greatest with patient dissatisfaction. And one was care 
in a hall. And we've discussed this, that if you get your care in the hall, it's because we don't have beds and it's usually because of ED crowding from boarding. Mm -hmm. The other one is prolonged time spent in the ED, which is a direct correlation with boarding. Once you're admitted and you spend a long time in the ED, you are considered a boarder, so that's boarding. So patients who have care in the hall, patients who have prolonged time in the ED are very dissatisfied with their care. And they tend to not recommend the hospital to their friends and family. Interesting. Interesting. That's that's a super fascinating topic for me. I have a handful of soapboxes that I like to stand on, especially with residents. And one of them is about patient satisfaction Mm -hmm. coming from a community spot. And I do all the things I'm supposed to, right? I sit down, I shake hands with everyone, I say I'm the doctor as many times as possible to fix these patient satisfaction things. But man, does it grind your gears that the number one factor, time, time spent, time wasted, time trying to get into and see me is more or less out of my control on a day-to-day basis. And that data is right there. Exactly. So you are walking into a losing fight just to begin with. If they're receiving their care in the hallway, they're already going to be dissatisfied. You can't win that, which is unfortunate. And so this one showed that inpatients are not satisfied with their hospitalization if they got care in the hall or had a prolonged time in the ED. So boarding helps the competition. Now, this next one is, um, we'll call it concerning or scary. Scary may be a better term. Okay. This is the correlation of boarding, ED volume, and violence towards staff in the ED. So I know the ED is a violent place. I know that. I've witnessed it multiple times. I've been assaulted multiple times in my care there. Um, I knew this was a problem. I had never considered the ED to be the most violent place in all of medical care, but this study states that there is no more violent place in healthcare than the emergency department. Mm. And now that I think about it, it clearly makes sense. We have the sickest of the sickest. We have the people who are going to be violent, and that's going to be in the emergency department. In fact, it's so bad that OSHA now recognizes violence towards staff in the ED as a occupational hazard. Hmm. Think about that. So it is now accepted as a hazard of my job to have somebody attack me. Yeah, it's just part of life, right? Part of life. Just take out more disability insurance. (laughs) So in the U.S., about 3 in 1,000 visits in EDs result in violence towards staff. That's a pretty huge number. That is a big number. So in our ED, we see about 100,000 patients. Not perfect, not exactly, but it makes my math easier. So that's about 300 violent events a year. So basically once a day, somebody in my ED is being assaulted or being attacked. That is absurd. Mm -hmm. What they did is they looked at ED census, they looked at patient length of stay, and an interesting one that other studies did not look at is a patient-to-physician ratio which I think correlates well with volume. Mm -hmm. And as these increased, so did the risk of a violent event. On the least busy day compared to the most busy day, the odds ratio was 4.2 of a violent event as the ED got more crowded. Wow. Yeah, all those numbers make sense. If you have three patients, you can update them readily. You can say, sorry, it's taken a while to get this CAT scan. We had this person come in who needed to X, Y, and Z. You can cater to your patients better. Um, and if you can't, if you're spread thin, if they're waiting longer and longer and longer, you can't. People are getting frustrated. People are getting angry. The psych patient, the intoxicated patient that aren't getting the attention they need are escalating. And where in the world is there a more stressful place than maybe trying to get on an airplane than in an ED? <laughs> it's true. Yeah. So this looked at this. The outcome of this study showed that crowd in not only affects patient care in a negative way, it also places staff at an increased risk for violent events. So boarding can actually hurt me as well. Well, How about with medication errors? Do you think when you get busy and spread thin, you make errors? I actually have never, I don't think I've made an error. Uh, I'm shocked. You're a lucky man. So this one looked at, uh, it was a retrospective study that looked at every order placed over a three-month period of time. Every order was reviewed by a pharmacist, which is what we have in our ED, which is amazingly helpful at fixing errors. And they correlated it with something called an Edwin score. I'm not going to go in depth with the Edmund score, but what it basically is, is a workload to capacity ratio. So an Edwin, spelled E-D-W-I-N, of less than 1.5 is considered a manageable ratio. If you okay. get over 2.5, it's considered crowded and unmanageable. I wonder what Edwin had to go through in his life or her life <laughs> to develop that score. I wish I knew exactly what it did. I did look it up and I'd forgotten what it, what it meant. So, but as the Edmund score increased... Medical errors, and this is all kinds of medical errors, ordering the wrong med, the wrong dosage, the wrong route of administration, 
all of them went up, which makes sense. If you mm -hmm. get spread thin, you're going to make mistakes. So the outcome of this showed as the ED gets crowded, you're more likely to make medication errors, which I'm not at all surprised. Not about. surprising. Yeah. Yeah. So now here's the big topic of the problem with ED boarding, mortality. Hmm. So this is what we really kind of came here for. Um, I've already talked to a couple places throughout the studies that show there's a direct correlation with mortality and boarding. One of them is with delirium. Delirium causes increasing mortality and boarding causes delirium. So these are four different studies that look directly at boarding and their association with delirium. One of them was 10-day mortality. It looked at eight-hour shifts, and they are considered not overcrowded or overcrowded based on total ED volume. Again, not perfect with boarding because sometimes ED volume can be based on a bad ED day, but it's about as good as they could do with this paper. And they noted that as the shifts became overcrowded, there was a small increase in acuity, but there was also a direct correlation with increased mortality at 10 days. This was a small hospital, about 50,000 patients a year, and they estimated that based on boarding, they killed 13 patients a year, all due to crowding. So if that was to correlate back to my ED, we'd be making cold kills of about 25 patients a year, all directly related to boarding. Wow. That puts some hard numbers to some yeah. ideas that we've had. The idea of you know effects in terms of antibiotics for pneumonia, getting to asthmatics. There's a lot of morbidity there, and we've talked a little bit about mortality, but putting cold numbers and body counts to this is, is impressive. It is impressive. So second study um, looked at two, seven, and 30-day mortality based on ED length of stay for admitted patients. So this was clearly based on boarding. Mm -hmm. This was length of stay for patients who were admitted. Um, and they noted that there was a direct linear relationship with boarding. The longer you boarded, the higher your mortality at two, at seven, and at 30 days. So the longer you boarded, the more likely you are to die. This next study was a huge study out of California. And again, a lot of the hospitals in California are all kind of interrelated because of their system. So they're able to get large volumes of data uh, to get some really good numbers at. Mm -hmm. So this looked at 187 hospitals in California at over 1 million admitted patients from the ED. And they found that there was a direct correlation with not only death, but hospital length of stay and hospital costs. Their assessment of boarding was based on ambulance diversion time, which is okay. I don't think it's the best measure of boarding, but when you have that many hospitals, I think getting all the data to correlate from all that many hospitals, they had to find something yeah, and they chose tricky. ambulance diversion time. So again, not perfect, but pretty good. Okay. But based on these 1 million ED admits in one year, there were 300 extra deaths. There was 6,200 extra hospital days used and 17 million in hospital costs. So not only did they kill people, they used beds for a long time, and they spent a lot of extra money. So again, if I correlate this back to my hospital, instead of a million, we see about 100,000. So we're making, we're killing about 30 people a year. We're wasting over 600 hospital days a year in our hospital and spending a little over $1.7 million all because of boarding. So boarding is killing patients, it's wasting beds, and it costs a lot of money. And no matter where you are in medicine, I'm worried about patient outcome. I don't want patients to die. That bothers me. Mm -hmm. The nurses and people on the floor want their beds. So everybody who is on the bed, on the floor, are affected by how their beds are used. Right. And then the people who have no patient care responsibilities, the people who are involved with the economics of the hospital, certainly don't like the fact that they're spending millions of dollars a year. So this affects every single person in every single job within the hospital. Yeah. From your lowly provider all the way through your C-suite, those numbers are going to hit you one way or the other. Exactly. And so, as I've said a little while ago, the longer you board, the more likely your mortality goes up. This next one was an interesting study that also looked at the length of boarding. They noted that if you are boarding for about two hours, your mortality goes up 2.5% and your average length of stay in the hospital is about five days. But if you board over 12 hours, your mortality goes up to 4.5% and your average length of stay is about nine days. So that's mm. a huge number. So your mortality basically doubles. Doubles, yeah. And your length of stay basically doubles all from boarding in the emergency department. And that's that's an interesting trickle effect where it's, hours affecting multiple days you're getting four and a half more days in the hospital 
because you stayed in the ED 12 hours longer. Yes. Hmm. And that's fascinating to me. So the outcome of all four of those studies, boarding kills patients. Very simple. All right. So that was interesting. We've gone through quite a few studies looking at hip fractures, abdominal pain, asthma, patient satisfaction. All of them showed that there's nothing but negative effects of boarding on patients in the emergency department. Again, I want you all to continue to think about never allowing boarding to become something that we accept as normal. You can keep discussing these numbers. Uh, you can look at these papers and share them with, with the people up in the C-suite, as you said, and show that there is no good outcomes in any aspect of patients boarding in the ED. But are there some solutions? Yes, there are some solutions. Thank you. I was wondering, hopefully, that we were going to get to the solution side and not just all doom and gloom. Yes. And Pat, tell me the solution <laughs> to the problem. There's a few. And have these solutions actually been shown to show benefit? Yes. Excellent. A few of these are actually evidence-based. Are these easy? No, they are not easy. But boarding kills patients. We've learned that. These solutions will harm no one. We just have to make difficult choices with what we're supposed to do, which is putting the patients first. So again, this is not an expansion process. If you'll notice in every one of my examples of improvement, none of these are expansion. Expansion is expensive. The Institute of Medicine estimates it costs about $1 million to create a single bed in a hospital. That's a lot of money. So expansion costs money. And if you continue to expand, but you don't improve how you use your flow and infrastructure, the expansion is not going to help. It's going to be a huge waste of money. Another idea before we get into this that I really want to discuss is something I call a silo effect. If a person or a group in one silo makes choices or actions or does something, but they don't feel the negative response or negative effect of those choices, mm. there's no motivation for them to change. Sure. So a quick idea here is, or an example here, is a floor. The patient's been discharged. The nurse is in no hurry to discharge that patient and takes a couple extra hours. Once that patient has been discharged, there's no motivation to clean the bed. Once the bed's cleaned, they know they're going to get more work. So if they slow their roll, they have less work. They don't feel the effects of their choices. Other places feel the effects of their choices. Mm -hmm. So until the silo that these people work in feel the effects of their choices there's no motivation for them to change the root causes of these problems are not going to be fixed until they feel the pain of their choices does that make sense absolutely and a lot of the suggestions we have for improvement are based on people changing or feeling the effects of their choices so the first one is moving to what i call a seven day a week hospital Maine Medical Center is the largest level one in all of northern New England. Now, understanding this is not a huge population-dense area, we are a very vast catchment area as far as uh, total area. But we were a five-day-week hospital. Our coverage during the week is very different than coverage on the weekend. And this all started way back in the day when a vast majority of admissions were elective and came from primary care physician's office or came from home themselves. Now, a vast majority of admissions do not come as elective. They come through emergency departments. Some hospitals are as high as 80%. Maine Medical Center is over 50%. So a lot of patients now come through the ED. The five-day-a-week hospital creates these inappropriate or self-imposed ebbs and flows of volume that we can fix by smoothing this out over seven days a week. Got it. The ED staffs the hospital or the emergency department exactly the same every single day, be it a Monday, a Sunday, St. Patrick's Day, Christmas. It doesn't matter. We staff it the same every day. The hospital needs to do the same. We need the same call schedule, the same consultant availability 365 days a year. So yes, our consultants are not going to like that, but it needs to be the same every day. We need to have a similar surgical schedule throughout seven days a week. We need to have a similar elective admission schedule throughout seven days a week. An example I'm going to give on this is Maine Medical Center does a vast majority of its complex, either cardiac, surgical, uh, neurosurgical surgeries on Mondays and Tuesdays. Mm -hmm. So I know when I come to work on Monday and Tuesday, I have no access to an IMC level or ICU level bed because all of them are being used by post-operative patients who have big surgeries. And that gotcha. makes sense. Those patients need the ICU. They're all there Monday and Tuesday. Which are, by the way, our biggest days of the week. Yes, absolutely. And I also know by the time we get to Thursday, I cannot get a floor bed. 
And the reason I can't get a floor bed is because the patients who had their surgeries on Monday and Tuesday have now improved to enough. They've come out of the units and they're now on the floor. So strictly because of an unequal surgical schedule, I can tell which day of the week we're going to have problems getting what kind of bed. If we smooth that out over all seven days, we're not going to have these ebbs and flows of inability to access certain levels of beds. This will be the same every day. Sure. Now, I understand that no neurosurgeon who makes the hospital most of its money or no cardiothoracic surgeon who makes the hospital most of its money wants to operate on Friday or Saturday and Sunday. I get that. But if we've shown earlier that this is truly a big deal. Boarding causes problems. Boarding kills patients. If we smooth this out, would it work? I have a couple examples of yes. The first one is Cincinnati's Children's Hospital. They were suffering from huge boarding issues and had actually planned on a 100-bed, $130 million expansion. Again, I talked a minute ago about about a million dollars a bed, and that's what was shown here. Mm -hmm. But instead of expanding, they smoothed their surgical schedule to be even over seven days a week. Not only did they not expand, they eliminated all of their boarding and saved a ton of money. So mm. just by smoothing their surgical schedule to seven days a week, they limited boarding, canceled their expansion, and saved $130 million. Nice. Maybe you incentivize those surgeons to do their surgery on Saturday. Use $130 million of that $130 million to pay our to surgeons. Get them there, right? Yes. You're still saving money. Yeah. Yeah. So I've come up with an idea for this is have the surgeons work a four day week have four days on two days off mm -hmm. so when you start on monday usually by day four your patients are going home so on thursday you've sent them home you're off friday saturday you come in sunday you operate on sunday and wednesday your patients go home you're off thursday friday and you can th do this six day a week schedule and if you all have the surgeons who have different operating schedules you can kind of work through this whole process and keep things on an even keel throughout yeah. the week it'll neutralize through the week gotcha right. How about issues with elective admissions? So Boston Medical Center um, had real boarding issues to the point where they were on ambulance diversion 30% of the time. That is huge. So eight hours a day, on average, they were on ambulance diversion, which is a huge number. They noted that their inconsistent elective admission schedule tend to be pushed towards the beginning of the week and was correlated with their ambulance diversion. So they smoothed out the elective admissions over seven days and drastically cut ambulance diversion time and improved flow. Hmm. So both of these, if you'll notice with both Cincinnati's Children's Hospital and Boston Medical Center, they improved flow. They did not expand. So they used their current facilities more appropriately without having to expand and, and spend money. All right. The next one uh, is kind of the bane of our existence, hallway patients. So for us, seeing a patient in the hallway is the way of life. We know this is what we do. I can't remember a shift I've not seen a patient in the hallway. In fact, I can remember shifts when we were busy with boarders where I haven't seen a patient in a room. We don't like it. Patients don't like it. Family members don't like it. And outcomes show that patients being cared for in the hall do worse. So what if sharing hall space with other parts of the hospital would improve flow throughout the emergency department. Well, Mount Sinai had a paper, fairly famous paper back in the late 90s that showed if the floors took limited numbers of hallway patients, it improved flow in the emergency department. Now, I have no desire to have the floors go through what we do. We work in an austere environment. We are built to work in an austere environment. The floors are not. So I do not expect the floors to take the same number of hall patients that we do. But for them to take a small number of hall patients I think is a reasonable request. Basically, it works like this. If a bed is ready, if a bed is assigned to a patient, that patient goes to the floor whether that bed is ready or not. So that patient is now sitting in their hallway. They have to stare at their patient in the hallway staring at them, and they tend to move faster. 90% of the time when a patient was sent to their floor that was assigned to them, their bed was ready within an hour on the floors at Mount Sinai Hospital. So this works. This goes back to the silo effect now, where the floors are feeling the effects of their choices and their inefficiencies now by watching their patients sit in the hallway. So they are now motivated to correct their inefficiencies to improve patient satisfaction and get patients into room. So they're now we're having the effects of a silo felt inside their silo. This is certainly not a... Uh, well-accepted or um, well-received idea at Maine Medical Center. We've been pushing this for years. I've talked about this as well at my hospital when I, yeah. for a little while, sat on our throughput committee. 
um, it's it's hard. It's yeah. hard to propose that to people that aren't used to it, and it's very difficult to say we do this. Why can't you? It actually becomes you have to be a pretty good communicator right. and negotiator and have a neutral party. But it's I think it's a fantastic idea. It's not truly caring for patients in the hallway. It's seeing your patient that will be in that room, and they get in that room much faster. Yes. So and again, we're not expecting the halls in the units on the floors to be as busy as the halls in the emergency department. That's not at all what we're expecting. So how about improving ancillary staff? And the example I'm going to give is what we call EVS or environmental services. An example I want to give in my hospital recently on a Thursday, it was 10 o'clock at night. We had 108 people in our ED, which for our emergency department is beyond cracking. We are broken. We are not functioning. We had 25 admitted patients and 30 patients in the waiting room. And this is, again, at 10 o'clock at night when we start losing a lot of staff. We went on ambulance diversion. And the reason all of this was going on is because there was a complete lack of environmental services upstairs on the floor cleaning beds. Nobody could explain exactly what happened, but they said they had only one EVS provider on for the whole hospital. (laughs) They somehow called in or pulled off of break a bunch of EVS providers and within about two hours we were able to decompress the ED and come off of ambulance diversion just by getting beds cleaned up on the floor. So we can build a huge hospital. We can build this $500 million 128 bed expansion but if it is not staffed appropriately with ancillary services to get rooms ready then the expansion is not going to do anything. This is another example of improving infrastructure improving how we use our facilities not by expanding our facilities hire a few extra EVS providers or improve how they're staffed on times it need mm-hmm. to improve the use of, of the beds we have sure. so they were able to clean this up in two hours why can we not have this at all times it doesn't make sense to me right and even having a surge capacity like we do with our actual medical providers medical providers can't do medicine without a space to do medicine in Right. So recognizing the value of these people in the same regard as we see our doctors and our nurses uh, would be an important change. Exactly, exactly. All right, how about um, AM discharges? This is something that Maine Medical Center has made a huge push for and unfortunately negatively affects a lot of our admitting teams and rounds. So we have all been on rounds when we were residents. Rounds take forever. You walk from bed to bed to bed. And after you've seen everybody, you start making decisions on discharges. Maine Medical Center knows that if you have a patient that's discharged in the morning and gets to the floor early in the day, their average length of stay is one half day shorter. So if you get to the floor earlier in the day, you are discharged sooner. This is a huge issue For emergency departments, as we need beds later in the day. So if you start discharging patients in the morning, when the need for beds arrives later in the day, which is where our volume increases, Mm -hmm. the beds are available to start sending people up. So if they're discharging people in the afternoons rather than in the morning, we're already behind because the beds we need are not available till later in the day, and we're going to start filling our ED with borders. Mm -hmm. So one half length of day for every admitted patient is a huge deal if you look across an entire year. So that's a great idea. Is there any idea in terms of people do rounds? We know that's how medicine has worked. Often rounds end at 1 p.m., depending on how big your your list is. How do we kind of get the idea that we want to get patients set and out in the morning? I do one, one of the pushes they've made at May, at May Medical Center is we have a lot of social workers and care coordinators that help mm. prepare for the discharge. So if we know somebody is going to be discharged in two or three days, they start preparing for the discharge two or three days beforehand. Oh, that's so great. when the time comes for discharge, by the time the morning comes, they've set up rides, they've set up medications, they've set up oxygen, they have home PT and OT. They have all the resources already set so they can go. They don't have to worry about setting up the resources on the day of discharge. Okay. So more staff in that regard and some system of sort of pinging people. They have maybe a day left. They have half a day left. They're ready to go this morning. Yes. Being okay. proactive, which I'll discuss later, is being proactive with all of this will help be ready down the line. Okay. The next one is weekend discharges. So there are multiple studies that look at discharges from week to weekends. And oftentimes the discharge rate is about half of that on a weekday 
or half of that on a weekend compared to a weekday. Mm-hmm. Why I have no idea, but it truly affects flow from the emergency department. I know this because on Sunday afternoon, we cannot get med surge beds because all the med surge beds up on the floor are full of patients no longer needing acute medical care. And on Monday, when they're all discharged, all of our borders go up on Monday morning. So if this could be evenly smoothed out throughout the weekend, we'd have less issues with boarding in the ED. There's a hospital in New York City, MPH Montefiore. If I said that incorrectly, I apologize. They noticed this discrepancy of weekend discharges and changed it. They moved to keep discharges and transfers to long-term care facilities even throughout the entire week. Again, creating a seven-day-a-week hospital from a five-day-a-week hospital. And they, uh, they did quite a job there. They, just strictly by increasing weekend discharges, eliminated boarding from the ED. They were able to close a 30-bed unit, and they saved $70 million in the first year. So not only did they not expand, they contracted. They saved money. And they improve boarding by doing one simple thing, which is making a seven-day-a-week hospital for discharges. Wow. That's impressive. Yes. So we should – we'll highlight that one in the show notes because sort of the processes by which you do that, you have to have a very good community support. You have to work well with all of your uh, referral centers and rehab centers and the like. Right. So, yeah, as I'm going to say next, a lot of this is related to the long-term care facilities or the rehabs who we know they work on skeleton staff on the weekend. They do not have the same staff on the weekend as they do during the week, and we know that. But we need to find a way to allow long-term care facilities to be able to take transfers seven days a week. And actually, it would be even better if it was 24 hours a day. Yeah. Because how often are we in the ED? And at 10 o'clock in the morning, we know that grandma, who's weak and dizzy, is not safe to go home but doesn't have an acute medical process to put her up in an acute medical bed on the floor, we'd love to get her straight to rehab, but we can't do that. And they have to be admitted, taking an acute medical bed, again, blocking access for those who need acute medical beds when somebody actually needs rehab. So 24-7 transfers to long-term care facilities, while I have no data to support this, would absolutely improve flow throughout the ED. Mm -hmm. And also would decrease the utilization of many of the inpatient beds up on the floors. You have a little bit of data, at least at least some correlation yeah. data in terms of the fact that that hospital in in New New York. Yeah, it was in New York, Montefiore in New York. Got a a seven day a week discharge schedule smoothed out, and that significantly improved many numbers. Absolutely. Hmm. So the other thing is we need to be proactive, and as I've discussed multiple times throughout this talk, that there are days, no matter how good your hospital is that the ED is going to be overwhelmed by native ED volume, be it uh, a car crash with multiple victims, be it an icy day we had uh, last winter where we had 62 fractures in one day. There are days, no matter what the hospital does, the ED is going to be busy. But on those days, if you notice early in the day that the ED is busy, being proactive by opening units or improving discharges or getting more staff on board, will help eliminate the effects of boarding later in the day. If we notice at 10 admits that we're in trouble and start acting, the effects are much less severe than if we wait till we're at 25 admits or 30 admits and have to go on ambulance diversion. So being proactive with every bit of this is important. Being proactive with getting our surgeons on board for a seven-day-a-week surgical schedule. Be on board with our admitting services discharging on the weekend. Be being proactive with getting our long-term care facilities on board with taking patients 24-7. All of these things are about being proactive and improving flow. Again, all of these studies have shown that boarding causes true harm to patients. All of these actions that have been done do not show that expansion is helpful. It's just improving the use of the infrastructure and the flow that we have. So all we need to do is get everybody on board to improve what we have, improve flow, and we can drastically decrease boarding. And by decreasing boarding in the ED, we're going to improve patient care and long-term patient outcomes, as well as patient satisfaction and employee satisfaction. Awesome. I think that's great. And I think to sort of echo that point and make these points visible to people that it matters to, we have to have leadership in our, in our administration from the emergency department representing ourselves on these committees throughout the hospital, right? So if we're talking to the village that's downstream that's flooding us, we're the ER, we're full of patients, we're busting at the seams from problems that aren't our own necessarily in a lot of ways. 
to talk to these people about the problems that are affecting us, we have to have a means of communication. So we got to get people in the seats for these committees, for these discussions uh, to represent ourselves and present this data. Right. That's why I think it's also so important to have ED providers as people up in the C-suite, as you say. It is so nice to have people who understand what we go through, who have the voice of the emergency department when a lot of these discussions come around. Absolutely. So hopefully for you all listening, that's motivation to, to take up that action, to talk with your hospitals, to talk with your C-suite, to put yourself in a group trying to solve this problem because it's a problem that we face, but it's not our problem alone. And Pat, I, I learned a ton. I hope you guys did too. Thanks so much for the time. Hey, thanks for allowing me to do this. This was fun. Podcasts aren't as scary as uh, public speaking. Yeah, right. <laughs> we'll have you back again then, I think. Thanks, Jason. Awesome. That's all for the Down ECM podcast for now. If you like what you hear, please hop over to iTunes, throw us some stars, give us a review. It really, really helps us. Also, we would love to hear your ideas about how we can make the podcast better, any topics you like to cover, anything that you think would help your listening experience. You can check out more of what we have to offer at our blog, downeastem.org, and you can follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at downeastem. Until next time.